This morning we're going to be in uh, the book of 1 Peter. 1 Peter, uh, the first two verses. If you don't have a Bible with you this morning, or, or you do have a Bible and you just want a shortcut, you can pull the Bible out in front of you in the pew rack there, um, black hardback, and turn the page 1014, 1014, and you'll find 1 Peter right there. What do you do when you're the minority? How do you survive when the society in which you live thinks you're crazy or downright dangerous? What do you need to know not only to survive, but to thrive under hostility? And who do you trust when you're the enemy? These are all questions that many of us are having to ask for the first time. The prevailing wind of American culture seems to be headed in a direction in which a Christianity that remains rooted and committed to the absolute authority of the word of God and the lordship of Jesus Christ will be pushed further and further to the fringes of what is acceptable. And unless the Lord grants widespread repentance, Legitimate, serious persecution can only lie not far behind. And so we're having to ask these questions, many of us for the first time. And it is in this situation, the early stages of persecution, it is in this situation that Christians in Northern Asia Minor, which we now call Turkey, they found themselves here in the middle of the first century. They were being ridiculed, slandered, socially ostracized, all for their faith in Jesus Christ. A few decades later, they would find their opposition intensified by institutional persecution at the hands of the Roman Empire. And at the early stages of persecution, as things begin to get difficult for these Christians, the apostle Peter sent them in a letter encouraging them to stand firm and to know that their suffering is not in vain. Rather, reminding them that God is doing something in it and through them. And the Lord has impressed this passage and its implications for us upon my heart. And I pray that he will seal his truth to our souls and give us strength to keep the faith, knowing that it is the object of our faith, Jesus Christ, who keeps us. So now we hear the word of the Lord. First Peter, starting in verse one, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, in the sanctification of the Spirit, for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. This is God's word. So what we have here is a letter from Peter, the apostle, the close friend of Jesus. And, and let's try to get our mind around who this Peter is. He, with his own eyes, saw Jesus. He saw his miracles, his sufferings, his death and his resurrection. He heard Jesus's teaching, his weeping, his praying, all with his own ears. 
This is the same Peter who made that great confession at Caesarea Philippi when he said, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said it would be upon that confession that he would build his church. This is the same Peter who denied his Lord and friend three times in his greatest moment of need. And this is the same Peter that Jesus gently restored upon the beach saying, Peter, if you love me, feed my sheep. I don't hold your sins against you. If you love me, feed my sheep. And so that's what we have right here. That's what we hold in our hands. That's what we are hearing from this morning is Peter fulfilling the ministry given to him by the Lord Jesus to strengthen his brothers after he's been restored and to feed his sheep. So church, let's listen and feast and be strengthened. He says, to those who are elect exiles of the dispersion. So who is the audience of this letter? Despite all of the Old Testament language and imagery, Peter's original audience was most likely made up of primarily Gentile Christians. In this letter, Peter is adopting the language and themes of the Old Testament to point them to the fact that they have been grafted into the people of God. So there's no longer Jew and Gentile. There's no longer uh, the, the old covenant people of God and the Gentile pagans, but there's one people of God and they are united to that, uh, that people of God and they share in all the blessings, all the same blessings and all the same sufferings of God's elect throughout all ages. You see, just as faithful Jews live for centuries as sojourners, exiled from their homeland, Christians are sojourners. Our true identity lies not where we live currently. Our true identity lies in Zion, that, that heavenly city that the Lord is preparing and has promised to give us. Yes, we are citizens of Lowndes County, of Georgia and America, and we should steward our citizenship well. We honor those earthly authorities as established by God. In fact, Peter commands us to do so. But we bow the knee to none other than the Lord Jesus Christ. Where earthly rulers come into conflict with the Lord Jesus Christ, he gets our obedience. He is the sovereign. He is our Lord. And we are not surprised when our society is running headlong toward hell because so were we until Jesus captured us with his gospel. So we Christians are exiles. We need to understand this. Peter is reminding us right up front that we are exiles, sojourners, pilgrims, whatever you want to call us, we don't fit in. We're not completely comfortable here. We don't speak the language and the locals look at us weird and sometimes say not so nice things about us. We're migrant workers fulfilling our calling for a season until our boss calls us elsewhere. We may not have the best clothes. We may be a little dirty. And some of us maybe even came here against the rules. But we're here now. Now what? That's what Peter is telling us. He wants us to embrace our exile status. Don't try to, to, to get outside of your exile status. He says, embrace it and live in light of it. 
That is all the book of First Peter is about, embracing our exile status and living in light of it. That we don't live according to the standards and expectations of the world. We don't so deeply embed ourselves into this worldly system that we can no longer engage it as outsiders. We can live open-handed to the things of this world. Our identity isn't in our job or in our, uh, where we live. So if God calls us to another city or another job, then we can go because we're sojourners. We're not tied down. So maybe God is, is nudging you and has been nudging you to pack your things and move, let's say, to Washington, D.C. to help plant King's Church. Laura Bracken did. She's there right now. She said, I've been trained in physical therapy. I bet there's jobs for that in Washington, D.C. She says, let me leverage my career, not for my own comfort or routine, but for the glory of Christ and the building of his church. That's what we're talking about. That's living as a sojourner in an exile. Maybe he's inviting you to sacrifice some of your savings to open up your guest room to a foster child. Some of you have already done that or are in that process now. To the rest of us, what are we going to do? Because we're sojourners. We pack light. We keep our eyes up, always looking for opportunities. Now, this doesn't mean that we don't make plans but that we hold our plans with open hands because we belong not to ourselves, but to someone else. We've been marked. We've been purchased. See, we bear the brand of the kingdom of God. And this mark makes us stand out. We don't fit in because of it. We, we experience this as Christians often, this marked outness. We feel the awkwardness we feel the pull to conform, the pull to conform to the world. We want to be accepted by our peers. We want to be invited to the parties. We want that promotion. And what Peter is telling us is that we are exiles. And that identity has been given to us. God is pleased to make you stand out. I want to hear don't you hear that this morning? That God is pleased to make you stand out. He so loves you that he has stamped you with his own glory. And that's the most valuable gift you could receive. Yet there's one temporary side effect to this gift. And it's that you will be hated. Just like Jesus, who is himself the, the radiance of the glory, the exact imprint, the exact image of his nature. And what happened to him during his pilgrimage on earth? See, there's this principle in the fallen world that rebels against the glory of God will attack that which most accurately reflects it. Rebels against the glory of God will attack that which most accurately reflects it. And Peter wants us to remember that we have been marked with the glory of God and therefore we should expect trials. We will have trials, but God is for us and God is with us. And we need to be reminded of this because sometimes we can forget it. Sometimes we can forget our status as exiles. We can forget the mark. It's like when you're at home and you let your child um, cover you with brightly colored Paw Patrol stickers. Then you go to work and you run errands around town forgetting about that one large sticker on your back. 
You wonder all day why, why people are looking at you funny. It's because you were marked. In this case, as a parent, you knew at some point you were marked. You were well aware that you had stickers on you, but you completely forgot about it. Other people can plainly see it. Some correctly interpret, ah, I bet he has a kid. Some avoid the creeper at all costs. But the point is, we need to be reminded of our identity. And Peter is that brother who comes alongside us and he's saying, um, have you noticed that people are looking at you kind of funny? Yeah, that's because you have a giant pink Paw Patrol sticker on your back. And that's the theme of the whole book of First Peter, not cartoon puppies, but the marked outness of the Christian. And we'll see that here in these first two verses. There are at least three words. So I want you to look closely at verses one and two today. Follow along with me as I go. But look, there are three words that emphasize the marked outness of the Christian. We have elect, sanctification, and sprinkling with blood. Each of these three concepts relate to being marked out, being set apart. The first one um, is one of the two main adjectives describing the recipients of this letter. So describing us as Christians. Um, and that is elect. So we're not just exiles by chance or circumstance, but we are elect exiles. And so out of all the doctrines that one could use to comfort and encourage God's suffering people, the apostle Peter chose the doctrine of election. And he doesn't bring it up as a side point. It is literally the first word out of his mouth. See, in Greek, the word order isn't as rigid as English. So you can arrange words in a sentence in almost any way and still say the same thing. And because of this flexibility, um, what they would do is you could front load the sentence with what you want to emphasize. So if you want to emphasize a certain word or a theme, you would put it toward the beginning of the sentence. And, and in a sense, you're putting it in bold. It's saying, pay attention to this. This is the emphatic point of this thought. And, and so what we have here, after introducing himself, the first word of the entire letter is a klektois, elect. The first word. And so the doctrine of election is the solid ground and the warm blanket of the book of First Peter. He's saying, Christian, you can have hopes in the midst of your trials because you're not alone in this world. You're chosen and beloved by God Almighty. What is a man going to do to you? He says this right up front. So, so whatever you may make of your life right now, whatever you make of it, know this, that God has chosen you, Christian, as you are, where you are right now. And so what do we do with it? In the next verse, uh, Peter is unpacking the phrase, elect exiles. This is the key thing. He's unpacking this phrase, elect exiles, and it's really the unifying theme of the whole book. But what we see here is that our entire existence as Christians is for the outworking of redemption by the triune God. And this is our main point today. So this is, uh, take this point home. Our entire existence as Christians is for the outworking of redemption by the triune God. And the prepositions in verse two are key to understanding how this works. So let's look at that. Verse two begins saying, we are elect exiles according to 
the foreknowledge of God the Father. So if we are elect exiles, that presupposes that someone has elected us, right? Someone chose us, but not only choosing us, but also choosing our exile status. But here we see that God the Father is credited with giving the electing grace. It says we are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So like computer software runs according to its coding, or like the tides coming and going according to the tug of the moon, our election is according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So what is foreknowledge? The word is prognosis. And that word has come over into English in the medical field. And when the doctor gives you a prognosis, they're telling you how you can expect an illness to progress, right? The doctor has foreknowledge based on experience, based on the data. And the data shows that this certain illness will progress in a certain way given certain treatments. So that's prognosis. But God's foreknowledge, God's prognosis is different. God knows things beforehand, not based on anything outside of himself. So not based on any external data. God isn't just a really good, uh, he doesn't run the odds. He's not a good with, um, with the odds of how things should work because he's, he's been around a long time. He's got good experience. No, God knows based on nothing outside of himself. God knows because he has decreed. He has decreed, not because he looked through time and saw how things would play out, and now he therefore knows it. That would be a problem because then we would have God learning. We would have God learning something. And if God is an eternal, immutable, omniscient being, he cannot learn. He cannot learn because he has always known. This is God. That's what makes him different. He's always known. God says this in Isaiah 46. Isaiah 46, 9 says, I am God and there is no other. I am God and there is none like me, declaring the end from the beginning and from ancient times things not yet done, saying my counsel shall stand and I will accomplish all my purpose. So did you catch that? That, that God doesn't just know the end from the beginning. He declares it. He declares it. So you are not here this morning by accident. You didn't just decide to get your life together and just stumble in the door this morning. I know we believe that God brought you here. So Christian, God chose before the foundation of the world to set his special fatherly love upon you. And that brings us to another layer of meaning within the word foreknowledge. In the Bible, to know often takes on a meaning of knowing in an intimate, loving way. Like Adam knew his wife and conceived a son. So obviously there was more to that knowing than just mental awareness or affirmation. In Amos 3.2, the Lord says of Israel, you only have I known of all the families of the earth. Again, God obviously is aware of every family on earth not just the nation of Israel, but he had a special redemptive love for Israel, his elect. And then we see, praise God, in Ephesians 1, that this love extends beyond the ethnic nation of Israel 
through the whole world in the church. It says, even as he, God the Father, chose us in him, Christ, before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love, he predestined us for adoption to himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the beloved. So check this out. In Ephesians 1, it says that God has predestined us and chosen us according to the purpose of his will. You see, according to is the same preposition used in 1 Peter. So Paul uses the word will. Peter uses the word foreknowledge. In Romans 8.29, Paul uses the verb form of foreknowledge to know, to communicate the same idea. So this demonstrates that the concept of God's foreknowledge carries with it the presupposition of God's decree. So God's foreknowledge logically follows God's decree, not the other way around. So what this, the implications, what does that mean to us is that before we have ever done anything good or bad, before we could earn it or before we could disqualify ourselves from it, God loved us. God chose you, not because of you, because he just thought you were real special. No, God chose you because he is glorious and wanted to display his glory to you and through you. And because we are recipients of the electing love of God by pure grace alone, we are different than the world around us. Not because we're better or more moral. Most of the time, God chooses the worst and the nastiest. I mean, have you been paying attention in the book of Judges? We're different because we've been marked out. That's all. We've been set apart. We are elect exiles according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. So the next prepositional phrase in verse two reveals to us how that election that, occur, that occurred in eternity past is made manifest in time and space in our lives. It is true that God chose us before time, but there is a time in which that election is made manifest in time. So that's a lot of time, so I'm gonna say that again. It's true that God chose us before time, but there is a time in which that election is made manifest in time. Like there was a time when you were chosen by God, but were in full rebellion against him. You were like that one sheep out of a hundred that was not content with the green pastures and still waters that the shepherd provided. And you jumped the fence to find something better. But like a good shepherd, the Lord went after you. He left the 99. He, he put on his boots and found you. Tired and hungry, digging around in the dirt looking for food. He opened his arms and he bore you like a cross. He brought you home to the green pastures. But this time you can see how beautiful the place actually is. You think to yourself, why would anyone ever leave? And why isn't everyone here? I mean, over here is a, a fountain of, of cold, fresh water that never runs dry. And over there is lush fields of rye and clover to fill and sustain you. And over there, 
there's that fence. That wall that I once found burdensome. And now I see it just marks the boundary between life and death. What happened? What changed? You've experienced the sanctification of the spirit. Notice the word in, in verse two. You are elect in the sanctification of the spirit. And sanctification is another word in the Bible with multiple senses. You can think about it in two categories, positional and progressive. Positional sanctification is your status as set apart or made holy. It is something that is declared of you by God. Progressive sanctification is your growth in holiness. It's becoming more and more like Jesus morally. Here, Peter is using it in the positional sense. He's saying, you have been marked by the Holy Spirit. This is your new status. He has come to you and he has designated the rest of your life for holy purposes. And he makes this known to us by regenerating us and indwelling us. So if we go back over to Ephesians 1 and verse 13, it says, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation and believed in him, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. And being sealed in the ancient world uh, referred to the wax seal that, uh, that a king would stamp with his signet ring and that marked it as his property. And so Paul is saying, when you believed in Christ, you were sealed. You were marked by the Holy Spirit, like God claimed you and you bear his sign. And this work is effectual. Like it's not just a stamp. When the, when the spirit sets his seal upon you, it changes you. It changes your being. And that's what we'll see next. So, so far we've seen that we are elect exiles according to the eternal decree of God the Father, which is made manifest in time and space through the regenerating and indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. Next, we'll see the, the goal of our election. And notice that we've got two of the three members of the Godhead present and working in our salvation so far. We've got the Father and the Spirit. And now we'll see that our election is for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, Jesus Christ, the third there of the Trinity. And at face value, when we look at this phrase, for obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, at face value, we see two things here. We see obedience to Jesus Christ and sprinkling with his blood, two separate phrases. And the ESV renders it this way um, as two phrases to make it easier to, to read and understand. And it's a valid, uh, legit, accurate translation. But the King James Version gives a more literal translation at this point. It says, unto obedience and sprinkling of the blood of Jesus Christ. And, and this matches word for word with the original language. And, and I like this because it emphasizes the singular purpose of God's election, the singular goal. So there's one goal in God's, in, in, in God's election of us, but that goal is, is two things united together. So the word for or unto implies intentionality or direction. It tells us that whatever follows is the purpose or goal of the preceding. Therefore, we can say that we are elect exiles with the goal of obedience to Jesus Christ. 
I mean, do you think about that as your goal? I mean, when we think about the goal of our salvation is what? Escaping hell. We escape hell. We get our get out of jail free card. That's the goal of our salvation. But according to Peter, according to elsewhere in the scripture, even in uh, Ephesians where we just read, the goal of our salvation is obedience to Christ, is holiness. It's us being more like Jesus. So when God created the earth, he created man and woman in his image. And he told them to fill the earth, right? He wanted to fill the earth with his image bearers, those who would reflect his glory without sin and in perfect and in holiness. And in Christ, he's doing that. Christ is the new creation. He is ushering in this new creation where he is filling the earth with image bearers who look just like him. So the goal of our salvation is not about us escaping hell. That's a benefit that we have by grace alone, but it's about us filling the earth or God filling the earth with us in holiness. So the goal of our election is obedience to Christ. So God the Father decreed this. God the Holy Spirit applied this to you in space and time when you were born again, all with the purpose of obedience to Christ. So if you're calling yourself a Christian, one of God's elect, and there is no obedience to Jesus in your life, then you should question your confession. Because the same Jesus who is Savior is also Lord. And did you know that the first recorded word of Jesus's public ministry is repent? Those for whom the Father sins the Spirit seals, and the Son saves, will and must bear fruit. And now maybe you're hearing this and and you're getting that sick feeling in your stomach. I've been there. I've experienced that. The preacher's preaching holiness and repentance and and you're like, preacher, I've tried. (laughs) I've tried. And and maybe I need to come down this altar again for the 15th time. You've tried over and over to bear fruit. You've, you've sinned and you've told God you'd never do it again. So you stuck your feet in the ground. You clenched your fist and you tried with all your strength to truly repent. And then it happens. You failed again. And now you're hearing all of this and hopelessness is setting in. And maybe, maybe if you're tracking with me, you're probably wondering if you're even one of the elect. If election produces obedience, then I'm struggling to obey, then maybe I'm not even elect. So hear this good news. You're doing it wrong. It's that simple. You're doing it wrong. Obedience to Jesus Christ has never come through human strength and willpower. Hear that clearly, those who are suffering in their sin. Obedience has never come in human strength and willpower. You cannot beat it. Not once. Obedience to Jesus begins in complete weakness. In an admission that you're so sinful, so marred, so broken, that you're unable to do anything pleasing in his sight. Romans 8, 7 and 8 says that that you do not submit to God's law because you can't. You're not able to. Those who are in the flesh, says the word, cannot please God. So if the goal of our redemption is obedience alone, then we're all in trouble. And and those of you who are suffering because of your sin are 
in no worse situation than of us who think we've got it all together. We're all in trouble if redemption is for obedience alone. But here's where it gets good. That's why obedience to Christ and sprinkling with his blood is lumped together into that one phrase. Because one produces the other. They're, they're unified. The work of Christ on the cross, his shed blood, purchases and solidifies all of our redemption, including obedience. So friend, do not lose heart. You can obey Christ. But first you must be sprinkled with his blood. And you have to get low to do that because blood flows down. And this sprinkling with blood is a reference to Exodus chapter 24. So if you want to flip over there um, to that, I'm going to read a bit here. Exodus chapter 24, it's on page um, 65, starting in verse 3. What's going on here is Moses has just received God's law on Mount Sinai. He's received it from God. And then in verse three, it says, Moses came and told all the people, all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words of the Lord that he has spoken, we will do. And Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. And he sent young men of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Now listen to this. Then he took the book of the covenant and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and he threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. So after hearing God's covenant that required strict obedience or death, the people agreed saying all that the Lord has spoken, we will do and we will be obedient. So Moses, Moses sprinkled the sacrificial blood on the people, marking them, marking them as participants in the covenant with the Lord. And so now Peter is saying Christians have been marked with the blood of Christ and are therefore in covenant with the Lord through him. Not through the blood of the oxen are they in covenant with the Lord, but through the blood of Jesus are we in covenant with the Lord. You see the, the parallel of language of obedience and blood? But if obedience was the goal of the Mosaic covenant, at, at least at some level, it was the goal of the Mosaic covenant. Obedience is the goal of the new covenant. What's the difference? The difference is that one has a better sacrifice. One has a better mediator. One was a shadow pointing to the better substance. You see, the Israelites, they promised to uphold the covenant by obeying all that the Lord said. But did they? Of course not. They're just like us. And so we read in Jeremiah 31, 
Behold, the days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. So the blood of those oxen couldn't do anything for the people of Israel. Hebrews 10.4 says, for it is impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. Check this out. This is amazing. That's why Jesus comes to us in the Lord's Supper and he says to us, this is the new covenant in my blood. This is the new covenant in my blood. Because unlike the blood of bulls and goats, the blood of Jesus is efficacious. It has power to actually atone. Hebrews 10, 12 and following says, but when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, meaning he was finished, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. For by a single offering, he has perfected for all time those who are being sanctified. The blood of Jesus does something. It perfects us. It Affects those who are being sanctified. So all those who the Father elected and the Spirit sealed, the Son perfects through his blood. So thus you must be sprinkled with the blood of Jesus to experience complete redemption. Those for whom the Father sends, the Spirit seals, and the Son saves are all marked with his shed blood. So do you want obedience to Christ? you've got to get underneath the blood of the covenant because obedience is provided by it. And I hope that's encouraging to you. I hope that is freeing for you. God promises, and God cannot lie. God promises for all those who are sprinkled with the blood of his son. He says, I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. It's beautiful. The self-glorifying work of the triune God in the redemption of his people. He provides all that we need. This is our God. So back into the context of 1 Peter. So what does this Trinitarian lesson and doctrine got to do with our life, Peter? He's saying, do you want to know how to persevere? Do you want to know how to persevere in the struggles and the trials and the exhaustion of everyday life? Realize that each person of the triune God is fully committed to your complete redemption. Remember your true identity and elect exile. Even in fiery trials, you're being sanctified and refined into the image of Christ. And who in the right mind wouldn't want that? And so the greeting, it ends with, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. Peter's benediction matches God's heart for his people. Church, this is God's attitude toward you. Grace and peace multiplied. 
I mean, I'd be content with just grace and peace, wouldn't you? Just grace and, from God and peace with him. I'd be happy with that, but not God. He wants to multiply it among us. That's just who he is. Always giving more and more. If he who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He has in Christ and he will in eternity. Your existence as a Christian is for the outworking of redemption by the triune God. I hope that changes your week. I hope that changes your day. I hope it changes my day when I go home tired and, and uh, my kids are fussing at each other and I just want to take a nap. <laughs> I hope that I can remember this, that my existence is for the outworking of redemption in their lives and in my life. And so that I don't lash out, but instead that I, I come in weakness and I get under the blood and say, Jesus, I need your blood. I need the grace that you have provided and have promised to provide in eternity. Like, I hope it does that for you. I hope you just don't go home and say, you know more about the Trinity now. And you understand the economic Trinity, the workings of God. But I hope you go home and you understand that your existence as a Christian is for the outworking of redemption by the triune God for his glory and for your good forever. Because he loves you. He is for you and he is with you. He chose you as you are, where you are right now. So I'll ask the band to come up as we get ready to sing. This is one of those sermons that may not be so easily applicable. Sometimes we just need to sing and respond, but so here's some ways that we can respond. And, and every time the gospel is preached, it demands a response. One thing we can't do is just sit there. And so for the Christian, remember who you are. Feel free to live in radical obedience to Jesus Christ. Don't fear criticism or slander. Don't hide your Christianity when God is intent on making it more and more evident in you. And marvel at the grace of God that he would save such a sinner as yourself. Now, some of us here can't claim this identity yet. Maybe you've even worn the, the label as Christian, but you've never worn the blood. Some of us need to respond this morning by repenting of our Christianity and coming to Christ for the first time. And some of us, upon coming to Christ and being sprinkled with his blood, will face serious challenges. And, and we know that. If that's you this morning, we know that. Your friends will be shocked. Maybe even your family, which can be even more painful. They will laugh. They'll make fun. You may even lose them. But Jesus says, and listen closely, he says, everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for my name's sake will receive a hundredfold and inherit eternal life. So following Jesus may cost you your community, but it's so worth it. It's so worth it. What you will be leaving behind is a community that loves you based on what you provide and how you perform. You constantly must measure up and fit in. And aren't you exhausted? 
when you enter into this community, this covenant community marked by the blood of Christ, you enter into a community where you are loved in spite of what you provide or perform. You are loved for Jesus' sake. And, and you don't have to measure up or fit in. All that is required of you is that you be a sinner in desperate need of a savior. So come. Say, Jesus, I believe you. I need what only you can provide and get low before him. So let's pray. To those who are elect exiles of the Spurgeon, according to the foreknowledge of God the Father and the sanctification of the Spirit and for obedience to Jesus Christ and for sprinkling with his blood, may grace and peace be multiplied to you. God, this is our prayer. This is what we want. This is what we need. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.